Today's reading comes from Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who is dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you give, yet you never give me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this new year, and we're reminded that we continue to live and move and have our being because you have uh, declared it so by your word, that you hold all things together by the power of your word. Lord, I pray as we open your word, as we hear your word, indeed feel it in our hearts and think about it in our heads, that you would speak to us, that we would not stop up our ears or close our eyes but you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear of your goodness, your glory, indeed of your fatherhood this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, next week we're picking back up our Sermon on the Mount series, but this week, this week, I thought we would talk about what does it mean uh, to follow Jesus in 2020, and in a particular way as pertains to the fatherhood of God. Maybe this is just me, uh, but it seems like the the past few years, it's become increasingly common to say something like, I'm so thankful that 20, 
2017, that 2018, that 2019 uh, is finally over, right? That's a refrain that's often heard uh, at our workplaces, in our homes uh, these days. I'm so thankful that, that this year and all the terribleness of it is now over. Uh, maybe you said that yourself this past week. And in expressing your gratitude for the ending of this previous year, th there's this implicit hope this morning. A hope that 2020 will be the year that it finally happens. It finally happens. Well, what happens? The year that the question that controls your happiness, your joy, is finally answered. Maybe that question sounds like this. Is this the year I get the promotion I spent the past five years working toward? Is this the year I find love? I find a spouse? Is this the year I have a, a child? Will this be the year I have some sort of transcendent experience and all the pieces of my life which seem confusing and all over the place finally come together and I figure it out? Is this the year? Well, these are just examples. If I were to go around this room uh, this morning and, and had you think about how you would answer those questions, what would you be asking? What is this question for you that controls your happiness in 2020? However you would respond, I want to suggest this morning that there is a question you are likely not thinking of that I think you should be thinking of. A question, if answered correctly, could make 2020 the first year of the rest of your life. Are you ready for it? Here's the question. What is God like? What is God like? Now, before you write me off by saying, well, no one can know what God is like, and that seems too ethereal and out there and abstract, you know, what, what do you mean, what is God like? It's important to remember this morning that we're all living in view of what we believe about God, even if we don't believe God exists, that has an impact on our day-to-day -day lives, doesn't it? Do whatever we want if God doesn't exist. Live however we please if God is not real. But unique to the Christian tradition. And one of our core values is that we're rooted and grounded in history. This is not new, what we're talking about this morning. Unique to the Christian tradition is the teaching that God is three in one. That he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, all equally and totally God, all equally and totally and mysteriously one. And while each person of the Trinity is equally worthy of our attention this morning, I want to spend our time today, as I said, looking at God, our Heavenly Father. God, our Heavenly Father. And in doing so, I want to answer the question, what is God like, with another question. What if He's like a father? What if He's like a dad? Before we go any further, we, we need to acknowledge this morning that we all, all of us here, we all have daddy issues. We all do. And the idea of God the Father, for, for many of you, is not only a, a non-starter. You're already thinking about how you can like, slowly pack up your things and, and, and walk out the door without anybody noticing. I feel you this morning. I'm with you this morning. Can I make a promise to you? I promise to show you this morning how our Heavenly Father is unlike any earthly father. And here's how we're going to do that. First thing is this. I want us to see the Father in the Bible. 
I want to see the Father in the pages of Scripture uh, to show us how the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Spirit, is not only entirely unique amongst the gods, if we can say it like that, but is beautiful and glorious and good. That's the first thing. Let's see the Father in the Bible. The second thing is this. I want us to see the work of the Son to bring us to the Father. Indeed, how the Son makes us sons as well. And we'll talk about what that means. Before finally, thirdly, laying before us a vision of an abundant, lavish, and flourishing life that is rightfully ours because God is our Heavenly Father. Those three things, really simply, that's what we're going to do this morning. First thing is this. Where is God the Father in the Bible? Where is God the Father in the Bible? Short answer, he's all over it. he's He's all over it. Uh, In the very beginning of the Bible, if you you flip your Bibles to Genesis 1, we read of God creating. God creating. Now, I don't know if you've ever asked, uh, why does God create? Why why does God do this? We just sort of assume, if you've been a Christian especially, that that God just creates. He just does it because he's he's God and he did it. And so I don't know why, but why? Well, in the uh, Babylonian creation story, the Enuma Elish, uh, the god Marduk creates in order to have slaves for himself. He, he needs workers to build his empire, to do his bidding, and so he creates in order to have slaves for himself and to, and to just serve him in, in, in every capacity. Uh, in other religious stories and philosophical stories, uh, they suggest that perhaps God creates because he was incomplete without us. Right? Have, have you seen the movie uh, Jerry Maguire, right? Like, you complete me? God is the first Jerry Maguire, right? I need my creation in order to, com- to complete me, and I'm not satisfied without it, without them. But the Bible, the Bible gives a different answer as to why God created. God is not so ruthless as to create humanity for servitude. Nor is he so needy and small as to create them to fill a deficiency in himself, that he's, he's something without them or, or nothing without them. No, the God of the Bible creates, and this is so important for us to see, he creates as an extension of his self-giving, self-sharing nature. As a community forever of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that has eternally always loved one another, our Heavenly Father in creating is sharing that love with us. Think of a fountain. It overflows. It is sharing. That is the heart of our Father. As one theologian put it, creation is about the extension of that love, the love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, outward. It's the extension of that love outward so that it might be enjoyed by others, by, by you and by me. Now this might all sound very abstract, very, very philosophical. But, but do you see the difference it makes when it comes to our conversation about what God is like? Do you see this morning how our Heavenly Father distinguishes himself from the greedy enslavement of Marduk? Do do you see that, Christian? Uh, Do you see how our Father creates? Not because he's lonely. We, we, We don't fit the missing piece in God. Not because he's lonely, but out of the overflow of his always existing love for the Son. In creation itself, in our very existence, and in its beauty, we see our gracious and beautiful and lavish Heavenly Father. 
it should not surprise us then that when God calls a people to himself, and he does call a people to himself, that he should relate to them as a father. Look at uh, Exodus 4.22, for example. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Or, Or consider the words of the prophet Jeremiah. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them behind, beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble. Listen, because I am Israel's father. And Ephraim is my firstborn son. When God sustains and keeps and protects and cares for Israel, listen to the metaphor that he employs. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you. And picture this. As a father carries his son. All the way you went until you reached this place. Again, his tender dealings with his people evokes this fatherly language in the Psalms. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Christ City. The most foundational title we can give to God is Father. The most foundational title we can give to God is Father. Though He creates, His most foundational title is not Creator. Why? Because that would make Him foundationally dependent on us. In order for Him to be Creator, He would would need us. Foundationally, He is Father. And and, and though he is powerful and strong and mighty and able to do whatever he wants, his most foundational title is not almighty. Because Hitler was almighty. A lot of evil people were almighty. Tells us nothing of how God wields his power, of how he uses his power. Foundationally, our God is Father. Father. Here's a long quote from a theologian, and I think it says all this really well. Since God is, before all things, a father, and not primarily creator or ruler, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. It's not that this God does, being father as a day job, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. No, it's not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father all the way down. I love that. Thus, all that he does, he does as a father. That is who he is. He creates as a father, and he rules as a father. And that means the way he rules over creation is most unlike the way any God would rule over creation. He's not only father all the way down, but he is the good father all the way down. He is the loving father all the way down. He is the just father all the way down. He is the compassionate father all the way down. He is the patient father all the way down. And this sounds, right, amazing. This sounds so good. So then why do we have such a problem with this? Why right now does this message hit some of us like, that's cool. I don't really care. Or I'm actually opposed to this. 
Our problem this morning is that when it comes to our Heavenly Father, we, we invert our thinking. We start with our earthly father. And let us confess that even the best earthly fathers are deeply flawed. Deeply flawed. We start from our earthly father, and then we transpose that image onto our heavenly father. And our heavenly father must be like our earthly father in some way. We start here. We start here. But the scriptures are actually asking us to do something different. They're actually asking us to turn that upside down. To start here. To start with this picture of fatherhood. This picture of what it means to be a good dad. And from there, we are to understand what what fatherhood is. From there, we're to set our bar for fatherhood. I'd ask you to consider this morning, maybe the problem isn't with God's self-disclosure as father, but with us. Maybe we're the problem this morning. Maybe other broken people are the problem. Maybe other broken people who might have been in authority over us. In Isaiah, and we're going all over the Bible today, so I apologize. But but in Isaiah, when God's people make an alliance with Egypt, and they basically say, like, God, we don't trust you. We, we, we don't think you're our good father who can provide for us. We're, we're going to make an alliance with a superpower. We'll, we'll do it that way. L- listen to the language that Isaiah speaks over Israel uh, in condemning them. L- listen to this language. For they are rebellious people. And hear this. Lying children. Children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. On our own, this is where we stand. This is where we stand. For, for a number of reasons. I don't want to pretend I can name all them. For a number of reasons, we refuse to come to our loving Father. Like rebellious children, and parents, you, you can envision this. Like, like rebellious children, we sit, arms crossed, eyes rolling, as we glaze over his loving invitation. Or, we leave his home altogether. In the text we heard, read earlier by Jen, this is exactly what the son does. It's exactly what the son does. After asking for his share of the inheritance, he leaves. And look at verses 13 to 16 with me of Luke 15. We read this. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, if you're tracking with the circumstances there, uh, Jesus is doing his best like he's trying his hardest, his Jesus' hardest, to, to emphasize uh, the isolation and, and the distance that the Son is feeling and experiencing from the Father. Like he's saying in every way the Son is apart from the Father. He says geographically they're far apart, right? He took a journey into a far country. They're literally, physically far away from each other. He's financially removed, the Son is, from the wealth and comfort of his Father. Money squandered. And to make matters worse, a famine comes up. In this agrarian society, a famine is a big deal. 
Like, there's no grocery store to go to here. He's spiritually distant from his father. This is the Jewish young man now working in the midst of unclean animals. He's basically repudiated his faith. He's turned away from his faith, and he's spiritually distant from his father. He's altogether alone. He's by himself, and our text says exactly that. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and listen, and no one gave him anything. This is a communal culture where people loved and served one another, even those who were a little bit unlike you. And, and, and it says here, Jesus says here, and no one gave him anything. Nothing. He's doing his hardest to emphasize the distance between the father and the son. The son could not be running any further, any faster. Any further, any faster. And maybe this morning you've spent the past few years, maybe even your entire life, living verses 13 to 16. You've seen the failures of earthly fathers. You've seen evil unspeakable. Or maybe you're just not interested. And so you, you took a journey into a far country, hoping against hope that the answer to all this, to to all you're looking for, the question of 2020, the, the answer of 2020, was found in a distant land. And if not in this distant land, well, you're set off once again to another distant land. And on and on and on you will go. Distant land and far country after far country. Now, we've got to return to this parable in a moment, if we can leave it for a second. But for now, we're left with a problem. And it's a problem that Jesus is intent on solving. What is the work of Jesus the Son? What does he do? How how does Jesus bring us to the Father? Again, we're going all over the Bible, but in John 6, 38 to 40, we find a mission statement of Jesus. If you're new to Jesus, you're new to Christianity, this is Jesus' mission statement. He says this in John's Gospel. We read, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I'll raise Him up on the last day. Isaiah describes Israel and sin, and he might as well be speaking of us, right? As lying children, children unwilling to hear. Like you can picture a child in a tantrum, right? Just stopping up their ears, unwilling to hear, unreasonable. But how does Jesus, how does Jesus the Son describe his relationship to the Father? Did you see that in John 6, 38? For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The good news is that he does. He does. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, think about this, always existing, becomes a man and is the faithful son, the faithful child that you and I have failed to be. Again, we have to ask why? 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 We must not miss this. See, we might think God sent his son Jesus to shame us. 
You know, I don't know if you ever experienced this growing up, but if you had siblings, like, Jake, why can't you be more like your brother, you know, John? This is just some personal cathartic experiences of mine. Or so-and-so, why can't you be more like Sally? Like, like, look at what they're doing with their life. They have these degrees, these jobs, these children. Look at what they're doing with their life. Maybe you've experienced that before. The Father does not send Jesus to shame us. The Father does not send Jesus to set an impossibly high bar and say, well, get to it. Like, let's go. Start working. This is the bar. Why then does the Father send the Son? What does He want? What does He desire? Well, Jesus tells us again, and this is the will of Him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, everyone, anyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father sends the Son so that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life, or to put it another way, the Father sends the Son to make us his children, to make us his kids, so that he can once again relate to us as a father. The the Apostle Paul does such a good job communicating this. I think about a year ago, we were in a series in Galatians, and we went through Galatians 4. And in Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul talks about two paths to life. He's saying there's one path over here, and this is the path of law. And, and Paul's saying, like, you know, it's not just the Torah or the Jewish law that, that, that we're under slavery under. No, anything we give our lives to, we, we, we commit to, to serving, whether it's our jobs, our careers, our, our families, food, sex, whatever it is, uh, you are under slavery to that thing. There's that path over here. But Paul says there's also another path. There's the path of the slave, but there's also the path of the son, of the child. And he, said it's the, he says it's the work of Jesus that opens this path to us. It's the work of Jesus in his perfect obedience, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. It not only pays for our sins, Christ said, it's an atoning work. It pays for our sins, but it also brings us into God's family. It is also an adopting work. Do you see that? It's not just an atoning work, you're forgiven of your sins. It's also an adopting work. The cross accomplishes both of those things, and that's good news to us. Paul says this in Galatians 4, 4 4-7. But when the fullness of time had come, in other words, in God's perfect timing, at just the right moment, God sent forth the Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. Again here, the idea is not that we're all made into men. That's not the idea here. In this ancient culture, to be a son is to get all the inheritance. And Paul is saying gloriously and beautifully and well before his time that you and I, male, female, Jew, Gentile, free, enslaved, all of us will become like sons. We will all get all that the Father has. He continues, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Daddy, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
I, I told this story a year ago when we preached through our Galatians series, and I'm going to un- unapologetically tell it again. Uh, there was a woman going through um, counseling and experienced some breakthrough in, in counseling, uh, realizing in Christ that she had been adopted. And in the midst of this breakthrough, she recalls an incident where she saw her, her sister hanging up clothes on the clothesline, uh, and so she wanted to please her father. So she goes and takes her father's shirt, and, and not being able to reach the clothesline, puts her father's shirt over the wheelbarrow. She's pleased with herself. Her father will love this. When the father gets home, he, he sees the shirt uh, pinned to the wheelbarrow, ruined by rust. He, he gets angry. In his anger, he disciplines his daughter. Many years later, as a woman told the story to the counselor, she said this, I, I now see that God the Father wouldn't do what my earthly father did. Instead, he would forget the shirt and hug me. But the counselor responded, you, you still don't understand fully. God would not overlook the shirt, but he would take it, he would put it on, and he'd wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. This is our Heavenly Father's loving disposition towards us in Christ Jesus. This is made possible. It is available, as Jesus said, to everyone and anyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him. And so we come back to the story of the wayward Son. Our text read, The Son came to Himself, or came to His senses. He he figured it out. He sees his predicament, he sees his sin, and he repents. He, he, he turns away, and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And at this point, he's given up all hope of reclaiming his status as son, right? He, he doesn't, it's not going to happen, he's, he's too far gone, he's too distant, he's done too many bad things. He's given up all hope for that. He just thinks he'll have like a nice job as a slave in his dad's house, right? Just working for his dad, being like one of his other slaves. But our text read this. And I love this picture. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Have you ever seen the painting of Rembrandt's uh, The Prodigal Son before? If I had a billion dollars and I could buy one painting, that'd be it. It's beautiful. In the painting, you see the father kneeling down, swooping up to pick up his son. It's a moment of such tender compassion, beautifully captured. See, the son does not turn the corner and does not find a dad with arms crossed and disappointment on his face. He doesn't turn the corner and even find a judge making a cold pronouncement of forgiveness. Yeah, you're forgiven. Join the ranks. He turns the corner and he finds a father who had been scanning the horizon for him. How else would the father have seen him if he wasn't looking for him? He's scanning the horizon for him. A a father who throws off all social customs of the day, hikes up his his robe, runs down the road and embraces his child. Overly affectionate. This is the heart 
of our Heavenly Father towards us today. Despite what you've seen and despite what you've heard and despite what every thought in your head is screaming at this very moment, despite the lies that are being whispered to you from your past, our Heavenly Father, He loves you. 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 And your coming home, it will not be met with an, I told you so. Shouldn't have done that. Or, or here's a bit more work to earn my favor. In Jesus, you can come home to a fatherly embrace today. Right now. Today. This is the work of the Son to bring us to the Father. Believe in Him today. In Jesus, the lost can come home. See, the question, what is God like, is the most important question you can ask this year because the answer is this. He is a good Father looking for you. He is a good Father looking for you. But there's someone else in this story. I don't know if you caught him. Uh, it's, It's the older brother. In Rembrandt's painting, you can see like the face of the older brother just in the background. Sort of a, a, a scowl on his face. It's ominous. He's distant. He, the older brother lo- lo- looks at all that's happening and he's, he's, he's displeased. And we'll see that in a moment. Maybe you can relate to the older brother this morning. It, it seems like and it feels like you never left the father, right? Or, or maybe you did. But, but you came back home so long ago that you've forgotten the goodness of your father's home. That you've forgotten the sweetness of his embrace. Christians, longtime followers of Jesus here this morning, th- this parable is also for you. It's also for you. The, the older brother we read, right, comes home. He, he's indignant at the celebration taking place. And he begins to roll out his resume for the Father. It's this self-justifying spirit, right? Look at all I've done for you. Do you know how many people I, I, I've told uh, about you, Jesus? Do you know all the things I've accomplished? All the missions trips I went on when I was a youth? Like, do you know all the money I give? Look what I've done for you. Look at all this. And he looks at the, the cow being killed for, for his brother. And he looks at the robe that his brother's now wearing. He looks at the ring on his finger and thinks, where's that for me? What's going on? This morning I want us to look at just the first half of how the father responds to the older brother. Because I think if we get this, if we get this, if we truly understand what he's saying as he responds to the older brother, I think it will change everything about this year. Luke 15, 31 might be a verse that you might want to underline in your Bible for this year. It says this, And he said to him, Son, son, still his son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And here's how I want us to end today. By asking the question, for those of us this morning in Christ, at home right now with the Father, what does it mean that all that the Father has is ours? What does it mean? We suffer from a terrible condition. This condition kills our joy, 
It turns us into apathetic video game playing zombies. And it eventually turns into jealous, bitter, ungrateful people who look a lot like the older brother in Rembrandt's painting with the scowl on his face. This condition is called gospel amnesia. Gospel amnesia. Or good news amnesia. And it shows up when we forget who our father is. When we forget who our dad is and how exactly that came about through the work of Jesus. See, it is because of gospel amnesia that we will not press in in prayer in 2020. It is because of gospel amnesia that we will remain on the couch or in our bed. It is because of gospel amnesia that we will fail to reach out in love to our neighbors in this neighborhood in 2020. And it is due to gospel amnesia that we will be short with our kids, begrudge our coworkers, hoard our money in 2020. And I am convinced that a foundational pillar for us as a church, as we look at this year, what the Lord might have for us, is a daily reminder that the God we serve and sing about on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, the God that we serve and sing about is Father all the way down. Is our Father, is my Father all the way down. See, we're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount beginning next week, and we'll see that Jesus is convinced of the necessity of the fatherhood of God as well too. In fact, Jesus' whole sermon, the whole Sermon on the Mount, is predicated on this idea that God is our Heavenly Father who wants to give us stuff, give us things, bless us, not with Ferraris or Lamborghinis, but better things like eternal life and joy in the midst of suffering and patience in the midst of impatience. Look at this with me. Before we broke for Advent, we saw that the motivation for our good salt and light works was to give glory to who? Who are we to give glory to? Matthew five sixteen to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We'll see in a few weeks' time, in Matthew five forty five to 48, we'll learn that when we love people, when we love people, even our enemies, people who hate us, who despise us, who ruin our lives, when we love people, we are reflecting the very likeness of who? Our Heavenly Father, who is whole and complete in His love. In Matthew 6, when we look at our private lives, and I'm looking forward to that. In Matthew 6, when we look at our private lives, our, our lives of prayer, our lives of giving privately, we'll learn that indeed there is someone watching us in private. Someone who sees all that we do. We'll learn also in Matthew 6 that when it comes to prayer, we don't need to pray long and eloquent and wordy and fancy prayers. Why? Because our Heavenly Father, ever the Good Father, He already knows what we need. Are you anxious? Statistically, most of us are. Are you anxious? We'll continue in the Sermon on the Mount to see that our Father, the Great Provider, will never leave us without Nor, Jesus continues to say, will he withhold blessings to the one who asks. In fact, Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will who? He doesn't just say God. He doesn't just say the Almighty or the Creator. 
what does he say? How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And finally, Jesus will say this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. If we fail to see and acknowledge and celebrate that God has revealed himself to us as our heavenly Father, we will miss all of this. All of this. We all have daddy issues. All of us. And some of us this morning with pains and hurts that I cannot imagine or even begin to fathom. And I do not pretend to. But I want to plead with you this morning. Allow yourself to be embraced by the Father who is running down the road to you. Christian, allow yourself to be embraced by him again. To remind yourself what that robe feels like. To remind yourself exactly the blessings that are yours in his house. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we see that the Father is for us. He is for us. Let me close with a familiar verse. And I invite you to hear it afresh this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Would you stand with me as we respond? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.